Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Join us as we listen to queer classical music from around the world, talk with composers, and explore the wonderful, diverse, and growing repertoire of LGBTQ musicians. So today, Jacob and I are really pleased to have on the show one of Australia's leading queer artists, Evan Lawson. Now, Evan's work has been described as bar-to-bar beautiful and has even been spoken in the same breath as Marla. That isn't enough, Evan is a renowned conductor, particularly of opera music. However, what sets Evan apart is his outspoken solidarity for First Nation and LGBT plus people, and we're really looking forward to talking with him. Well, today we are uh, very happy to welcome uh, Evan Lawson all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome. Hello. Good day, as we say here. <laughs> <laughs> Evan is a uh, composer, conductor, uh, writer of many things, uh, musician uh, in Australia, and we're uh, we're very happy to have you here today. We're we're going to listen to a few things, and I'm excited to uh, pick your brain on how you. Conduct and how you work through productions and ensembles, and uh, the two things we're listening to today are so uh, interesting uh, in their production and, and in their creation and inception. And, and I'm looking forward to hearing about it. But uh, I wonder if you can tell our listeners just a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Thank you for allowing me on on the show. Very excited. Um, so yes, my name is Evan. I'm a composer and a conductor based in Melbourne, Australia. I am 32 years of age and have been composing and conducting pretty much my whole life. So I started playing music when I was 10, um, but I've been working as a professional musician, you know, my entire adult life. Uh, and when I say working as a professional musician, as everyone might know, that's a very loaded term because one doesn't necessarily make my entire um, earnings off that. So I do also work for a lot of arts organisations here in, in Australia. I've done a little bit of work overseas. Um, I've been very fortunate to have music performed all over the world. So, yeah, I create art. Which is the goal <laughs> so many people, and it's phenomenal whenever, in whatever context you're, you're able to do it. I mean, it's uh, every... Everybody tries for that. That's great. I'm happy you're making art. This is good. <laughs> um, so we have a couple things to listen to. Uh, the, the first one that Sammy and I had kind of talked about listening to was from, from Hyacinth. So maybe you can tell us a bit about this production in general and then tell us what we're going to listen to. Sure. Uh, so Pian from Hyacinth is a double concerto I wrote. It's actually had a few iterations. So the version you'll hear is the most recent from 2015, but I actually originally wrote it in 2012. Um, so I say to people, I am a reformed clarinetist. So I played the clarinet ever since I was 10. Um, and when I got to uni as a composition student, I got really jealous of all the other instrumentalists playing an orchestra and doing concertos and doing all these things. So I was like, I still want to play the clarinet. And I continued with it and I really battled with it. I just didn't, I'm not a clarinetist. So that's why I'm a reformed clarinetist. Anyway, I was like, I will write myself a concerto 
perform it with an orchestra and then I am never going to touch the thing again. And that is exactly what happened. So I wrote this in 2012. Um, my best friend, uh, Jess Fortinas, who's an incredible harpist now based in China. Uh, I wrote the harp part for her, the clarinet part for myself. Jess actually couldn't do the show. So then we actually had to fly a harpist over from Western Australia because I just couldn't find anyone to do the gig. Her name is Catherine Ashley and she did the premiere with me. And then I revised the work and conducted it in this recording for my master's recital in conducting. Um, again, I wanted Jess to do it and she happened to be in the country because she was living in Germany at the time, but she couldn't do the dates. So Catherine flew over again and did it, but Jess did play in the orchestra and I rewrote a glockenspiel part <laughs> for harp. So the harp concerto actually has two harp parts and Jess and I still to this day laugh like, oh, remember that time I rewrote a, a glockenspiel part and it also had a part for tin cans. So I made her <laughs> play the tin cans in it. So you'll hear these tin can parts. That's my friend Jess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Great story. I mean, uh, how often, A, is there a harp in anything, and let alone uh, two harps? That's, exactly. That just seems opulent to me. And, and, tin can, and tin cans as well. I mean, it's not common. Exactly. Exactly. There's, um, I don't know how familiar with, uh, he's, a, he's an American like wind band composer, but uh, John Mackey, uh, who is, is a whole uh, mood and vibe unto himself, but John Mackey wrote a, a wind band piece with, uh, uh, I think they're trash cans filled with uh, chains. And you cool. have to throw those. So those percussionists have to like, because it's a fairly famous like American wind band piece. They have to uh, a either be like quite strong in general, or have to like work out before the performance for several months so that they can just <laughs> lift these things and like crash them at the right time. That's awesome. That's I'm so all cool. for like altered percussion. This is great. Yeah. Well, the tin cans were out of necessity because I was the original version was for a youth orchestra, and all they had were a set of timpanis. So mm. I wanted to have a different color and some interesting percussion sounds without breaking the bank. So, you know, a couple of old pe uh, tin peaches and, um, you know, it, it worked out really, really well. Um, but the work, just so you're aware, if you want me to talk a little bit about the context of the piece. Um, so a lot of my work uh, focuses on ancient Greece. So a paean is a hymn to Apollo that was performed in ancient Greece. Um, and hyacinth, some people might know the, the myth of, of the hyacinth flower. So hyacinth was a beautiful young boy. Um, he was the lover of Apollo. The West Wind was jealous of him. Apollo and the West Wind, Zephyr had, um, you know, this competition and argument. And, you know, West Wind's like, I'm a better discus thrower than you are to Apollo. and. <laughs> He th um, they were doing the discus thing and the West Wind blew Apollo's discus and it hit Hyacinth. Hyacinth died and from the blood of Hyacinth, the flower was born. So this work, um, you know, the harp represents Apollo, the clarinet represents Hyacinth and the orchestra sort of represents the West Wind. So there's this kind of battle element between the three, but also aspects of like what I would call love duets between the harp mm -hmm. and the clarinet. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I just ask here, because you've got a kind of a Greek thing going with, with yeah. some of your pieces. So, so I mean, you've mentioned it there. Is, is there another reason for this? I mean, what, what do you find interesting, I guess, about the Greek mythology? Sure. Um, on a just kind of rudimentary basic level, it's just something that I've liked ever since I was a kid. You know, the myths have always 
um, as a kid, like watching a Disney movie and reading a, a book of um, Greek myths would have been on the same plane to me. Um, so it was just something that I was always fascinated in. Ancient Egypt was always a fascination as a, as a child and fantasy kind of imagination in general. But Greek myths especially, um, because they're so rich in in the imagery, you know, there's there's a whole philosophical element of it being the cornerstone of Western thinking. But also I love this element that, you know, ancient Greece is so heavily influenced from, you know, um, Central Asia, North Africa. You know, it, it has elements that are outside of European thinking. I think we often think of it as, you know, Plato and all that. And yes, they're cornerstones of Western philosophy, but they're also strongly influenced by um, non-European traditions and importantly for me, queer traditions. Um, and that, you know, kind of showing that gods like Apollo, who are very well known in, in you know, our world, have queer aspects to those stories that have perhaps been slightly whitewashed through mm. the Victorian era. So I kind of like the idea of re-exploring and re, um, re-engaging those, those queer aspects and gender aspects that are fluent through a lot of those myths. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about queer music towards the end. That's where we always end up, I think, with this. Um, but perhaps we should listen to the first piece and then we can talk about it in more detail. Yeah, so this is the uh, the double concerto. This is the, the harp and clarinet.
So I have a, an ensemble question for you. So what what is the ensemble for this? I heard, or at least I think I heard some like contrabassoon, obviously the tin cans, there's harps, there's uh, clarinet, brass. Uh, do you know just off the top of your head, like what's the, what's the ensemble? Yeah, uh, I might get this a bit wrong. It's been a few years, but um, it's essentially a chamber orchestra. So you've got the, the clarinet soloist and the harp soloist. As I said, the, the harp, version doubling on this sort of auxiliary percussion thing um, playing tin cans and there's also a, there's also a passage for envelopes at the beginning a rustling i've got this thing in a lot yeah. of my work about rustling paper which i find really beautiful um and then the actual kind of band the proper band is timpanis a double wind section with all the second wind players doubling on auxiliary so a coronglay mm. piccolo contrabassoon bass clarinet and there's a passage that I specifically, um, I love this idea in concertos where you kind of create a cacophony with that instrument. So there's just a slight passage where it's these like all the clarinets are just like wailing away at each other. Um, so yeah. I love this idea of like the family, you know, kind of all squawking at each other. Um, two horns, one trumpet, one trombone and a string section and a piano. I'm pretty sure mm. is the band. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's like a pretty beefy band. Yeah. 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 I, I must admit, when I first started listening to it, I, started, I got the recording and I started listening. I thought, God, there's something wrong with the recording. And and, it's, and then I realized it was actually deliberate. And then I was thinking, yeah. How, what is that sound? And I, I spent ages for about, I must have been hours thinking, what what is this thing at the beginning? And I guess it's the rustling paper. Yeah. That's exactly at the beginning. Right. And, and I was like, I was like, gosh, is it, am I hearing this right? And it was, it was. I spent ages just focused on this little bit, trying to work out what it was. It was great. It was really fascinating. Well, Sammy, thank you, because like for me, that's like 
my goal in life. Like Ravel does this all the time where, especially if you're playing in the orchestra and you're used to the way that an orchestra sounds, you'll hear this thing. And actually Jess, the harpist who I mentioned, who I worked a lot with and we've played together a lot, would often talk about how when you do Ravel, you hear this, you know, it might be a glockenspiel, a second trumpet and a, I don't know, a second oboe, like instruments that might not regularly mm. double, double, and you hear this amazing colour and you go, oh, my God, what was that? And so yeah. I've always tried to create um, those sort of colours. So thank you for saying that. That's like a little bit of a life goal right there. <laughs> and, and, and it's interesting you mentioned Ravel there because I, I guess when I listened to a bit of it, it did have this feel of an impressionist piece in some ways. I, I mean, it was kind of... I mean, it's clearly different. I'm not not trying to say it, it's like it's the same sort of um, the same musical genre, but but it did have this feel of almost being impressionistic in in the sort of soundscape it was trying to build. Yeah, absolutely. Like I would say, especially when this piece was originally written when I was still a student, and when it was revised, like Ravel, Debussy. Um, Stravinsky, you know, the early mm. Stravinsky, always huge, huge influences on me. Um, just the whole French, 20th century French school of colour, which really is born with Ravel, um, was very influential on on my development. So, yeah, I mean, natural sounds and depictions of the natural world is also something that isn't always present, but often creeps into my music. This, this piece is especially, I guess... Um, I like the idea that it, it uh, is blurring the lines between programmatic music, you know, descriptive music and more abstract music. And that's often like all of my music sort of walks this line where it's at times very theatrical and it's usually narrative based. But through that, I like the idea of also creating a little bit of chaos and a little bit of the unexpected. So um, I think that's something you often get with Debussy is a great example where you get this like... Um, logic and and uh you know um depiction of things and then a complete abstraction of of mm. the you know like in, a, in an impressionist painting it then blurs the edges yeah. for you to kind of enjoy just the pure abstraction of it yeah yeah i think the blurred edges it kind of works in my head it it felt and it's funny to hear you talk about like a story inception of, of where the the piece comes from 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 Heisenberg. and then the the sound of like zephyr blowing like the wind and the like it, it feels very like i'm being blown through mm. uh the sounds and it seems almost it like in he's like maybe impulsive like where you end up going is just kind of where the wind has taken you like some of these sound things that kind of come out of nowhere or the um the colors that pop up out of uh either either from chaos to a, an interesting sound color or from nothing to an interesting sound color um and when i was writing uh notes to chat about this i, I think i wrote colorful six times like i think it just was so <laughs> like bright and vibrant and like i'm i'm a wind person i i deal with like wins 99% of the time. And so I'm used to color because everything is inherently mm. colorful, whether you want it to be or not. Um, but similarly, this just sounded so like rich and colorful. And so that was like, that's like, always exciting for me. That's nice. Oh, thank you. I mean, orchestration is like the funnest thing. You know, it's just so great to, and I often, for a work like this, I would write out the, well, 
the way I wrote this piece is I wrote out the clarinet, the harp parts and a condensed orchestral part in a piano score version with like cues to myself, okay, this will be a flute solo or whatever. And then at a later stage, once I'd sort of perfected that draft, I would then elongate, you know, extend it out for or orchestra. And I often write, uh, that's a way I really like writing. It's a, it's a way to write vocal music really well because you, similar with a concerto, you've got a, a single line you don't want to muddy that line up too much. Like if it's a clarinet and it sits in sort of the mid register, it's not that strong. So if you've got other instruments sitting in that register, it can often, um, the clarinet has to work more, you know, extra hard or, or the singer has to work extra hard to cut through the texture. So it's actually an easier way to sort of say, okay, well, I can put the, the middle ground and the foreground out. Um, so yeah, orchestration is just such a, a, a fun, um, thing to do you know it's it's like i say to people that it, it's it's almost a, a whole different process uh the writing of the notes is kind of like constructing your painting and then you're adding the color onto that so you just think the impact of a piece can be completely different um and the, the interesting thing with this work is that it is the second iteration <clears throat> of, mm -hmm. a, of, an, of another piece so it's it is an opportunity for me to return remove add uh, and fiddle around a bit, um, which was, you know, a great pleasure. <laughs> so, so when you write this, I mean, I, as, as Jacob will tell you, I have no musical talent whatsoever. When, when you, when you listen, uh, obviously you've got this in your mind, what you want this to sound like, and, and you start this, this top level um, orchestration, if you like, of, of the basics. Do you then find yourself going, no, wait a minute, that's not what I want it to be like. I, I want to change that or uh, with the rest of it. Or do you actually end up ending up where you think you started? Yeah. Um, my process is kind of like I'm very fortunate in that ever since I began writing music, I can just sit at a desk and write music. Now, that's not to say that every note I write is a masterpiece. Absolutely not. But I can sit down and just finish page after page after page, room after read. Wow. So for me, it's uh, there's this quote by Shostakovich where he said that he spends years with a piece, but he doesn't write it. And then he sits down mm. and then he writes the work in, yeah, in two months or whatever. And that yeah, was often how yeah. he wrote a symphony. He just sat down and it just sort of came out and there was a little bit of argy-bargy and, and editing mm. and stuff. But, you know, essentially he sat down and wrote it. I'm very similar. I'll sit down. I do a bit of pre-planning, you know, I might do things like, I do a lot of descriptions. So I might be like, like a work like Hyacinth, um, there's a lot of clarinet techniques that are unorthodox. So there's one moment, for instance, where the clarinetist has to get a piece of cigarette paper. So woodwind players often have cigarette paper in their case to dry the pads because <laughs> you get too much saliva. <clears throat> and one day I was experimenting with like, if you're fingering a note and there's some of those holes open if you if you bring the paper in and out it creates this amazing buzzy sound because the paper's so mm. light so i wrote large sections of the piece with that in mind so obviously i had a clear idea of the coloration of it but often for me i will just sit down you know i start at the start i write to the end i rarely chop and change and then really the kind of i guess that element of like craft and reevaluation happens more so when I'm in the room with the musicians. And as a conductor, that is 
a very different process because often I'm conducting my own work. So I can mm. ease, I have the authority to just be like, cut this section, add this, <laughs> put that up an octave, change that. And I think like musicians love that because it's very rare to be in a, in a classical music context where you get the opportunity to workshop. We just don't have mm. that time, especially with an orchestra. We just don't have that. Like, it's so expensive. So, you know, unlike, um, you know, my colleagues who may be theatre writers or, you know, where there is a, a kind of, a, you know, or, a, or a, a novelist, you know, you have mm. the part of the process is redrafting, redrafting, redrafting. We do do that. But when we perform it, people expect it to be a masterpiece. Yeah. And it's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, really, it's really hard. So that's a big part of my my thinking and luckily as a conductor I've got a lot of skills that I can like look at the page and make some of those decisions hopefully before I'm confronted with 150 people <laughs> questioning <laughs> what I'm doing. That's an interesting so I as, as somebody like I don't I don't write I say I'm like a, a functional uh composer as in if something needs to uh, I need like five more minutes of something I will write something but it's, it's yeah not my bag. <laughs> But I understand the, the skills of a, of a conductor and it's interesting to hear you say like putting on the different hats for different purposes for the same goal, like being able to, as a conductor, understand what the composer needs and as a composer, understand what the conductor needs. And then in both roles, understand what the ensemble needs and can make those changes. And I don't think I've really thought of it that way. And so that, that's really fascinating to me that like as a composer and uh, it's something that is uh, written for people on, on it's on their stands. You're in, in a rehearsal, and then as your conductor hat goes on, you can like make those workshoppy changes through the mind of a composer. That's really interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, and be intuitive about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I I always wonder if you if you could go back in time and listen to Bach or somebody. You know, whether he wrote this stuff and he went, well, actually, hold on a minute, we're going to play this differently <laughs> to what I wrote it down to be. You know, and, and how much of it, you know, and so that's what's kind of nice about this. You're actually you're hearing it as the composer really wants you to hear it played yeah. out there, which is kind of nice about modern music, I think. Whereas, you know, when you hear it often, um, older music, you're hearing it through the, the ears of um, uh, somebody different, you know, so it kind of kind of has a different flavor to it. So it's, that's what I kind of liked about this. It's kind of kind of fun thing to listen to. Well, I, what the things that strike me about those observations and what I find really interesting and, and what I, again, like, I just feel so lucky as a, as a creator of, of new music and, a, and an, a conductor of new music is that, like, you know, Jake, you might, you might be able to um, talk a bit about this where, like, the, the overture to the magic flute, right? So it opens with those chords and they're paused and... You know, conducting school, it's like you've got to you've got to think about how these chords are delivered and you know, oh curriander <laughs> like this and blah blah. And you know, it is like you there are treatises, there are there are tomes dedicated to the history of how Mozart did it. Mozart wrote it in like ten minutes as yeah. a perfunctory quick thing that he whipped off to just yeah. write an overture, you know? They were not but over time a an entire legacy art form has grown around all of this stuff and so of course you've got to preserve it in like a museum way but you've also got to think of it in a fresh exciting new way so it's like i think again like orchestras are inherently pretty conservative organizations 
just in the way they function. You've got 150 people in a room. There has to be some sense of consensus that, you know, so there has to be a consensus that the chords can't be the most extreme, you know, huge pauses or whatever. And if it's in the theatre, it's a different context. So what I kind of find really interesting as the composer-conductor is that, you know, I can work, you know, if I'm doing, not that I've had many opportunities to redo works, um, but like Orpheus, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about later, is a good example where I've done it. Um, I've workshop sections. I've done a performance in Melbourne and then a performance in the United States. Going to the United States, I, the previous version was written for friends and colleagues, and I wrote it to be, you know, my trombonist in my ensemble plays the sackbutt. So I was like, sure, I'm going to write a sackbutt part. You know, I'm, I'm, we can't afford percussion. So again, we have a bass drum and some paper. There's the percussion section done. Well, then when I go to, um, go to Texas to do it, we're working out of the university. Oh, we can have this and that and all these percussion equipment and all this and all that. But also the limitations of the musicians is different. So, you know, heart parts were changed. We had to, I rewrote an entire instrument part the day before the show. You know, you, it, it's much more akin to what people might have uh, in their minds when you think about, like, we're going to put on a show, you know, yeah. put on a theater. Like, like you read the stories like Stephen Sondheim, you know, where you, you had to rewrite a song the day before. It's, it's much more akin to that. But the legacy we have of the canon has kind of... Um, lost a lot of the spontaneity and so mm -hmm. I, I that's what really excites me about making new music and especially chamber music is that it there's and working with composers where you can just be like this doesn't work i'm sorry this doesn't work you got to change it you know so another ensemble might be able to do it better another conductor might be able to do it better <laughs> we can't the gigs tomorrow what do you want to do you don't want to sound like crap or do you want to sound good so <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny you should say that because i think um you know, this is always one of the things that that you find for people who, who aren't into classical music complain about is that is the lack of spontaneity the lack of kind of you know interaction with audiences you know you can't applaud you can't do this you can't do that you've got to stay silent you've got to sit down you can't do you know mm. and, and it makes it very difficult to get into music sometimes you know um yeah, and actually and actually be part of it and um what I think is really good with a lot of modern stuff is that it enables you to to interact more, which is kind of a kind of a goal, really. I think because you know it, it, it does make this less stuffy. You know, you see the modern, more modern orchestras actually make it less stuffy. So it's kind of nice to hear that. I think. And I mean, that is my guiding principle in the way I curate, the way that I I put concerts together. My ensemble, Forest Collective, the word you. Um, interactive the word you use there mm. is like one of our guiding principles and we actually less so now but we used to try and do performances that we called interactive chamber music you know ways that you can walk right up to a musician and that you can walk right up to a musician you can wander you can move through rooms or we've had actors and theater makers and dancers and all sorts of other aspects to change the mood or the the um, focus of a show but yeah that's that's a big part of of outside of my compositional practice is like you know making we say you know clap whatever you want now inevitably at at a concert no one does that in a classical music concert because the music is so intense and it's so hardcore and it's like people don't want to interrupt all these things but we try and encourage that um spontaneity and and warmth and that there's no kind of like oh you don't realize it's the second <laughs> you don't yeah. clap between you know and i i've you know to excuse my french but i have no time for that bullshit. like i just no. 
have no interest in that. And for anyone that kind of would correct somebody to, you know, it's just like, that, but also that, you know, that is a canon and tradition that can be honoured in other places, but it's not um, in my spaces. That's not something that uh, is a priority. But it's a canon and a tradition that can be honoured that is also really not a part of the history of, no, of that yeah. music making in general. Like we, absolutely, it's it's such a, I, I have a, a very strong, and I, I, as I always say on this podcast, like I'm preaching to the choir, but I, <laughs> I realize that if you, if when history comes time and we pull back, um, it will have been about like a 50, 75 year period where we had this idea where you had to be so stuffy and couldn't clap and that, because prior to, I mean, if you were at any of the original performances of, I mean, pick a composer from mm. prior to, you know, well, let's say 1920, uh, it was ruckus and you bumped into a musician and there was food and you were drunk and you were yelling at your friend across the way. And there was like this, this idea of like a, going to a concert in furs and pearls and tails is such a like <laughs> weird, strange yeah. thing. And, you know, I appreciate the high camp of it. That's great. But it's such yes. a tiny amount of time that we uh, hopefully will have done that with, with classical music. And it's so nice to hear when people are making the next generation of classical music, this because uh, we have to move forward. We can't only program Beethoven forever. We have to keep moving. Um, <laughs> And when people are writing all this, this wonderful new stuff that we've gotten rid of that idea of having to be so uptight and pretentious about everything that, you mm -hmm. know, if something is funny, laugh. Like if there's an actor yeah. doing some like yeah. stupid thing on stage, laugh at them. They're, they want yeah. to be laughed at. That's the point, you know? Yeah. It's also like give the, give the performers some warmth as well. Like it's yeah. something for me that like, there's such, you know, if I, I've never really had, you know, the concert hall orchestra, you know, you walk in and they stand up and, you know, of course that there's, there's respect there and all that, but there's, you know, when I do a forest performance, the audience is right there and I have to go and close the door, tell the bar to stop serving drinks, dim the lights myself say hello to my mum and then walk on stage. You know, it's, a, it's just, Perfect. it's a much Perfect. more interesting, enjoyable experience to me. Now that's, yeah. again, not to say like the Saturday Night Symphony or putting the pearls on to go to the opera, that's great. But like, think about all the other opportunities that there are yeah. to experience the same music in different ways. It's kind of interesting. I mean, a story that happened to me was that I, I like the ballet. I've always been a big ballet fan and I used to go to the Royal Opera House, which is very stuffy. Yeah, the Royal Opera House yeah. all this kind of, and people do a dance and there may be a little ripple you know it's kind of all like this and then I was lucky to go uh, to the Bolshoi in, in 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 Russia actually be there and this is some years ago and there they're shouting all the time they're, they're just out there shouting if it's a great oh yes and let's have applaud and, they, and they'll do this for 20 minutes and make them do the dance three times <laughs> you know and this kind of thing until they're exhausted you know this kind of stuff and, and it's just part of the tradition you know that that if they've done something good we're going to shout and we're going to raise our glasses and this kind of thing so i think it's become a a very stuffy almost almost you know um northern european almost I, I guess tradition of like you know sort of maybe even anglo-saxon sort of tradition of like you know of, of we've got to be very victorian and be very upright and straight and this kind of thing and, and that's kind of kind of depressing and kind of boring i think anyway i always find it funny i mean as as a as a musician you know 
the more musicians you know, the more you understand that that is not how musicians function. They like when you actually know musicians, they're not uh, uh, above having a, a drink or having a good time or enjoying what they're playing in the moment. You know, and then that it's so funny that we present it that way. That you know, these uh, very uppity, highly trained musicians are. You know, that's not how we work. But yeah, <laughs> totally. I, 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 Oh, Sorry, right. just because this 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 comes in even. I mean, this is another thing that I we we started to talk about was was queer music as well, and and how even in a sense that's even more extreme for queer music to be fitted into this box of very rigid structures, um, because and so that makes it even worse if you know what I mean. In a sense, we're trying to fit something that is maybe joyous and different and, and all of that into a very formal rigid structure, which is which is not what it's about or not how it should be. Absolutely. And like, you know, it's, it, it, you're making commentary on life, right? So mm. that's an inherently political thing. So I, what I was going to say before about like the audience reactions, I think as well from the three of us, our life experiences come from this colonial UK, British thing, you know, like the way that people behave in Spain, for instance, or, you know, the, the more Latin X countries is very different, you know, even like going to the United States. In Australia, like, you want to get a, a standing ovation, like, you got to work bloody hard to, to make us lazy layabout stand up and applaud. Well, when I, I was in America a few years ago, I was like, we have to do another standing ovation, you know, the standing <laughs> ovations, like everything, every single, I was like, okay, it was good, but like, come on. So it's, it's so interesting, these like um, different attitudes and, and perspectives. And um, I mean, to, to speak to the sort of the queer context, it's like, you know, there is a performative, you know, I think I always think of like the Oscar Wilde sort of, um, history of, of that kind of like performative other, you know, the, the drag queen, the, the, the sort of um, the freak, if you will, mm. is often, you know, a queer person questioning the status quo. And that's often looked upon perhaps in an academic way and a positive way, but also more often than not, as we know, in a really negative, you know, laughing clown jester like thing. And so as a conductor, like where I'm in a position of authority, but obviously I'm a human being who second guesses myself, you know, there's often an element of, of, of that, of the performative aspect of being a person who has to stand in front of a hundred people and tell them how to interpret the music. Even if I'm the composer of that music, that's, you know, th th there's still, there's a thousand more years of experience in front of me than I have about playing the violin. And the audacity of me to rebow something, you know, a Beethoven symphony or, or, or to come in and, and write a thing and say, do this, you know, when I, I, I don't have an innate understanding of the violin, you know, it, it's so it's um, I, I'm always sort of aware of that. But luckily, I think the world has changed where a lot of those roles were either, as I said, sort of comical or tyrants, you know, I think of Marla mm -hmm. a lot, this like ty mm. tyrannical kind of <laughs> awful, you know, firing people on the spot and telling the back section of the second violins to play without the rest of the orchestra, all this sort of stuff. You just can't do that now. You know, like contemporary HR doesn't allow that, anymore, <laughs> thankfully. So that's sort of, um, the, the, you know, progressive world has, has, has helped in some ways, but still, you know, there's a performative aspect to what we 
we do as as musicians and especially as queer musicians so maybe thinking about uh performative queer arts and queer uh musicians we should maybe switch to to orpheus hmm. so this production is really uh interesting if i uh have my my ducks in a row tell us about the uh the actual like performance and the actual production and and where this uh this version comes from yeah uh, so this is my so far magnum opus, I would say, which is uh, in itself. I hate you know that kind of <laughs> crap. I think that's the going back to our conversation before. That's part of the problem of this sort of you know oh it's the greatest thing I've ever written. But it's certainly the the largest thing I've written. It's the largest like continuous piece of music. So <clears throat> it's a what I call a dance opera um, here in my Australian accent. Yeah, dance opera. Um, I staged the work in its entirety in 2019 with my company Forest Collective in, in Melbourne. Um, and then I took it to the United States with a company in Texas, in Austin, Texas. Um, but prior to that, I it contains a lot of um, previous works that were tester pieces for this sort of um, large scale uh, work, which is actually originally conceived as a, I love this idea of like, blurring the traditional genres. So it was conceived as like a symphony that was operatic. Mm. Um, so the idea that it could be a flexible work. So within the work itself, it explores kind of what an opera is, what an oratorio is, what chamber music is and isn't, and what like a symphony is and isn't. So just on a kind of um, sort of base level, uh, the there are times when the singers are singing very verismo, you know, oh, woe is me, I am so sad, blah, blah, blah. Very, you know, oper in that operatic tradition. But then there are times where the characters are used as instruments. There are times where the three singers have to use paper. So this paper thing returns and there's rustling of paper and, and, and rocks. They play rocks at one point. They groan and growl in ways that are not necessarily to do with the character they're to do with the musical thing so i love this idea of again you know switching the performative roles that you're expecting you know the singer at one minute is eurydice the next minute she's a different character then she's uh, playing some rocks then she walks over here and fiddles with some paper you know th there's there's aspects to it that uh sort of um come from the tradition of orchestral you know the orchestral mm -hmm. world um and, you know, this idea of the audience using their imagination for letting the music sort of create something. So there's that aspect to it. Then there's the the Greek myth and the, um, the actual story of Orpheus. So the work is um, for three singers and three dancers when staged with the dancers. Um, Orpheus, Eurydice and um, a character called Calice. So everyone knows you know, Monteverdi's La Feo. Everyone, a lot of people know Gluck's um, Orpheus and Eurydice. Like there's umpty doo versions of them. You know, um, the Muppets have done Orpheus. You know, like it's a very common um, mm -hmm. theme. And I will say the Muppets, if you can, it's on YouTube. If you watch the Jim Henson versions from the 80s, it's like dark crystal cut. It's amazing. It's really, really incredible. Um, and was actually very influential on the piece. But um, uh, so... We know this story of, you know, the great musician with his lover. She, in one version, um, gets bitten by an asp. Uh, in other versions, she is um, chased uh, by a satyr and is um, sexually abused and eventually dies. And that um, Orpheus then journeys to the underworld because he's so, you know, so distraught 
and he pleads his case to Hades and Hades allows her to return to Earth on the one condition that he walks, when he's walking back up to the real world, he cannot turn around. And of course, Orpheus doesn't know if she's there or not, turns around and she gets sucked back down. Hmm. We all, everyone knows that myth. What we don't necessarily know is that there, you know, the history of pedastry in ancient Greece, you know, this thing where a, a man would have a young boy in a sexual relationship, but also, you know, it served a very different social construct to be what we would understand today. And basically this young boy would be uh, a mentee, if you will, both sexually, uh, socially, economically, all these things. And of course, it was a man of social status that was allowed access to this privilege. And that, um, that young boy would be his property, essentially, until the young boy had a beard, at which point that boy would then, the cycle would change if that boy was an aristocrat or, you know, high social standing, not a slave or whatever. Orpheus had this relationship with Callis, so that's the Callis role. Um, so I bookend, the, the, the work is in four parts. The first part deals with um, Orpheus when he was on the boat with Jason and the Argonauts and he saves them from the sirens. So I wrote a work for string quartet called Sirens, which is the foundation of that section. Um, they sing a love duet. The second part deals with Eurydice uh, and her wedding day and this uh, interaction with the satyr. Then the third section deals with the underworld, the journey to the exploration of the um, dealings with Hades. And then the fourth part in classic ancient Greek style, he leaves the underworld. He goes, well, bugger her. I'll try and find Calice. He can't find Calice. And all these women in this uh, wild orgiastic thing, uh, pissed off that Orpheus doesn't want to join in on their frivolity. So they rip his head off. It sails down the Euphrates and becomes a star. Zeus puts it in the sky as a star. So <laughs> that's that's the, the crux of the piece. So a big part of it, um, sorry to just keep blabbering on about, but this, is, this work has sort of inhabited so much of my life. A big part of the piece is the role of Eurydice, the role of women in opera, the oppression of women, me as a man, a white man, cis man, telling a woman to die twice. She dies twice. <laughs> yeah. Eurydice dies twice. She's just brought back and then dies again. You know, Mimi dies an awful death. You know, Violetta dies yes. an awful, these awful deaths that these women have to face and seeing in these roles and the, 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 the misogyny and the stereotypical kind of thing that um, uh, female identifying opera singers have to deal with. So a big part of it for me was quest just questioning that and acknowledging that and sort of saying, well, you know, give her the... Give her the contemporary voice that she doesn't get in Gluck or Monteverdi and do it with those words. So I took the librettos of those operas and all the words that, that Eurydice sings in the piece are the word are her words in history, but hopefully in a way that gives her um, a modern power and allows that performer to give her, you know, a little less of the woe is me waif mm. and hopefully mm. empowers that person to interpret her in a way that, you know, and empowers them to interpret her in a, in a modern way, I guess.
I mean, so like, like you alluded to, there's been so many tellings of this story and it's, uh, I think most people have in their mind, like a, a version of, of maybe Eurydice's death that they hear and how they uh, interpret this. And so then this version to me 
as I was listening to it, A, it's uh, so extended in its rawness, maybe, is is a... I was listening to it and I just kept thinking, because there's there's this long period where we're, we're kind of oscillating between two notes with these long breaks and there's, mm. it's so filled with... Um, heavy angst and 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 sadness and but like raw emotional uh feel to it and i think part of it is the the physicality of the voice that the singer is actually like putting in some of that um grit to it mm. she has an amazing voice but like there's the, the a bit of that grit in the sound but also the, the extended like you never let us uh feel that cadence it's just keeps in that space um and so what I mean, I, obviously, that, I'm assuming that was intentional. But like, what, what were your thoughts when you were writing it uh, for that that part specifically, that beginning bit of? Yeah, it's actually interesting because what I was saying before about how I write and it being a reasonably planned thing, where I spend months thinking about something before I put pen to paper. This was actually a, um, to use a nice Greek term, a eureka moment where I just went. That is what it is. That is what the death is. And I pulled a piece of manuscript out and just wrote it. So to, to give the section context, the aria context, is that what's preceded it is a very long passage of instrumental music that has to that depicts the um, the chase by the satyr and and the um, kind of graphic um, uh, sexual assault that the satyr performs to her. So in the dance version, that is obviously danced. Um, and in that section, it's full ensemble. It's wild. It's raucous. There's lots of lots of color, grumbling, really quite violent sounds. And then out of that, you come to this. It's I'm not going to say static, but singular voice. You know, I love this idea that you have that climax, and then you have this single voice. The idea musically was that she's died, and what you hear in the aria is the breath leaving her body. So what we're witnessing in the aria is both literally her dying, but it's also the um, abstract kind of idea of her soul moving into that other realm where Hades takes over. You hear that the end, the bass drum, that, that happens throughout the work. Basically, the bass drum plays pretty much from the beginning of the piece to the end with this rumble so that there's always a heartbeat or there's always something, however you want to depict it, the universe, whatever it is, and it's just this fantastic sound, the bass drum in an acoustic space. Just you can, I could listen to it for hours. Um, Grise has this fantastic piece for two bass drums. It goes for like 10 minutes. It's just people scraping, but it's really cool. And it's so, anyway, I was obsessed with bass drums. So it's the only point of the piece, I think, where there's no continuous bass drum. So mm. you hear the bass drum at the end, the three strikes is kind of a literal, her heart has stopped beating. Um, but it's also, you know, the kind of knocking of fate, you know, all those kind of um, kind of things. So, um, and the pitch material, the F sharp to G, da, 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 that is like all the way through the piece. Mm. And the whole opera is constructed, actually have it, not that we're talking on video, um, so it's not really going to matter for our friends on radio, but I still have it on my computer. I have this like little scrap of manuscript that is the opera in those five <laughs> chords that is the entire opera so what it is is it's an e minor chord for those playing at home an e minor chord a small cluster based around d sharp e natural and f sharp another cluster on e f and g and then uh, a g sharp and a g natural and an f sharp with a f natural and a d natural anyway 
the 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 movement between E minor, E major, between G the the, the clash between G sharp and G natural is peppered through the entire work. And that represents it's very literal. It's E minor for um, Orpheus, E major for Eurydice, and then there's this D major minor thing for Calice, this sort of weak sound for Calice, because he's sort of in a vulnerable position. So the G, the, the F sharp to G, the G to G sharp thing, it's all kind of based on really traditional harmony, this like kind of a blurring between a major and a minor, happy, sad, male, female. Mm -hmm. It's this establishes a binary, but also mushing them together to create a, um, a you know, a, to, to, to make the, the ground sort of shake underneath it. Um, yeah, mm. so that's the sort of thinking behind the aria. Did that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> it did, and it's. I mean, I, I also I'm always uh, very interested to see scores, so that's that's really interesting <laughs> to me as well. And I was trying to. I'm, I'm condensing. So like, uh, this is this is maybe not like a useful conversation, and maybe this is like a, you and I have a conversation sometime. But like, so uh, you never play, or not never play, but like in in the the, the reduction, there's no uh, C C sharp B flat. Um, but everything else is covered. There's an, if you have a D major, there's an A, but there's a G sharp, G, F sharp, F, E, D flat, uh, or um, E flat, D Ish. sharp, D. Yeah. Yeah. And so like another day, you know, why, <laughs> why the C sharp and C is left out? Like where, where is that in the? Uh... Um, not, I, I don't think that was, uh, as in Tet, I think it's probably a fluke, but what what it does is that because Calice's world sits in this D major minor thing, but there's never the presence of the A. So it, you know, if you're talking real specific, sorry to those who perhaps are listening for the pure love of talking about music than the mechanics, but you know, if you have a, a major chord or a minor chord, it's the third that determines the nature of that. But if you remove the fifth, it, it 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 it's more abstract than if you have the fifth. So if you have the the fundamental, so D and A, that's going to sound more well to me anyway. It sounds more consonant, and in traditional harmony practice, it's deemed to be more you know functional, whatever. It's the third that determines the the character. So by removing that from Calis, his world is very weak. It doesn't have a sense of D major, while that. The worlds of Eurydice and Orpheus, and particularly at the end of the opera, there's this section where I really try to create a world that has both E major and minor coexisting um, in a way that um, is less static, less uh, abstract. Um, it has, it always has the fifth, so you can always, in the harmony, give it a sense of grounding. Calice's world doesn't have that because he's a young boy at the at the um, beck and call of another person. Um, Eurydice has her own power. Orpheus has his own power. So, um, yeah, I th but I think that's a fluke. I think that was a, just a decision to create a, a, sta a an unstable sound world for for mm. Calice, and it was just sort of a natural thing to remove the fifth. Um, but a good yeah. explanation, even yeah. even yeah. on the fly and unintentional. Yeah. And I'll give you I'll give you a good um, a reference where I got this from. So I'm obsessed with this E major minor thing. It's in like I'm going to say eighty percent of my music. It's this and Orpheus 
Orpheus is like a treatise in it. And it is the opening to the Titanic musical by Maury Eston. So if you're a music oh. theatre nerd, go and listen to the opening. And that has always obsessed me. So this is another aspect of my, my music is that I love Western art music and classical music, but I also love musical theatre. So there's also mm. elements that, um, you know, you're, you're always drawing upon many different areas. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. A little while ago, um, Jacob mentioned this raw feeling uh, and and we never talked about your music before this, but but I wrote down almost exactly the same words. I put down uh, very bare and raw in places that, that, that for me gave a very sense of combination of unease sometimes. And, and I guess what a lot of what you talked about, about changing between the majors and minors is part of this. So, so it was almost like it, it never settled. You were always being thrown off slightly. You know, you had, you, you thought it was going to resolve, I guess. I'd use the word resolve. I don't know if that's right. But you, you felt like it, but then you were pulled off into a different space that, that didn't resolve. And then you were brought back again. And it was only right at the end that you felt that you got some kind of conclusion to it. And I guess that's what you're talking about where you put this mishmash together. Because until then, you're always being between one space and another, and, and maybe this third space, which I probably did here as well, but these different spaces. So, so it's kind of interesting that, that we, we picked up on, on that sort of, you know, rawness and, and, and I guess fluidity. I don't know if that's the right word, but. It's interesting you say that because the character of Orpheus <clears throat> inherently is very lost in this piece. Like he spends most of the time <laughs> And the opera going, oh, oh, where is it? Where, where is she? Oh, where is she? Oh, where is she? Yeah, where's, oh, Kalisa has gone. And oh, we're going to get the sirens. And, oh, like he's just this like, the, the, the Eurydice is the most, more sensible one of the two. Like he spends all this time like, oh, woe is me. And I've lost her. And he's like, and that's at the core of the work. You don't get the like, you don't get the, the satisfaction harmonically until he's dead because he doesn't, he doesn't have that satisfaction. He's wandering mm. the world. And it's it's just interesting that that is also an element in my first opera, Calypso, um, where the character of Calypso is, it's also based on um, a section from the Odyssey. And she has a very similar character in that way, where she doesn't know what she's going to do. And she's really like questioning the whole thing. And she's like, on the one hand, making decisions as an individual, but also this sense of fate and the gods and the universe and blah, blah, blah. So this kind of, um, and I guess that's, you know, inherent in my character, perhaps this sort of um, unease, unease and, and friction um, of trying to sort of get through the adversity to something else. Um, mm. So it's cool to know that it comes across. <laughs> yeah. And, and you also mentioned the show show tunes bit. Mm. One of the other things I wrote down is, is I'd like to see this as a show. <laughs> because it, it came across to me that it was more than just the music when, when I listened to it. It, it, yeah. it had a feeling of like I needed to see it. I needed to, to see what was happening, uh, not only to understand it, I think, in terms of what the musicians were doing, but it, it felt to me like it was a, it was a, it was a piece of theatre as well. So, so that kind of came over in the music, and now I can see the showman bit behind this that, that's sort of driving that. I, I'll send through to you both, and maybe it could be added to the show notes or something, both a, an amazing image from the original production. And I, I've also got a short video that has mm. the choreography in it because that's um, Ashley Dugan, yeah. shout out to, to him. He's the was the choreographer and danced the role of Orpheus and he creates incredible work, really 
um, there's a abstraction in contemporary dance that I I love, and that was a huge element of this. But in this section, um, Kate Bright, who isn't singing it on this recording, unfortunately, but sang it in the original, um, she memorized the whole work, which as a composer is like such a privilege when a musician does that. And she, she memorized this section's really hard and it's two notes, which sounds easy. It's not, if you're a singer trying to maintain that poise is incredibly difficult. Anyway, she is um, in the performance, was moving around the space and, you know, trying to characterize this feeling of the soul leaving her body. And the dancer, she had this idea and we incorporated it into the show where her dance self, the other Eurydice, um, Pia walked on stage, comes up behind her, and there's a section where Eurydice needs to cover her mouth to sing, which feeds into this element around the exploration of the the sexual abuse and you know mm. this um, so trigger warnings about you know um, the, again for many female characters in opera and classical antiquity you know this element of rape and 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 abuse. Uh, she has to muffle her sound with her hands, the singer. So we got the dancer to do it. So it was this incredibly oh, wow. poetic moment where the the physical self, the vocal self, that all these things came together in this amazing moment. And um, the image for it is just so powerful. Um, uh, yeah, incredibly intimate and mm. changes the character for mm. that muffled section of the aria. I would love to see this someday. I, yeah. I, I you, uh, you know, you're never bringing it to the East Coast of Canada, but maybe I'll bring it to the East Coast of Canada for you. But uh, I would love give to me see four it. million dollars. <laughs> it's yours. Yeah, come on, that's, we we've got plenty of money. We've got yeah, <laughs> we got a we got a podcast. That must be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I love. I mean, as a as like a concert programmer and a conductor, I am such a fan of uh, making all parties sit with the emotion so um, actively, like for audience, for performers, for um, the musicians themselves. I love the idea of, and this is why I think like that, that extended rawness between those two notes is so compelling to me is that I, I am never, if, if we don't, do it to the uh, nth degree, what's the point? You know, mm. if we don't do something in full, why bother? You know, if you have uh, dancers and they just kind of uh, dance a bit, what was the point of having dancers? It has to be like such an integral, immediate yeah. part of anything. And so similarly, yep. when, you know, you have something, you, you write something like Eurydice's death and you only go 60%, well, that was useless. You got to go a hundred, yeah. make people yeah. sit with it, make people yeah. sit with those two notes, make the performer sit with those two notes and, and have that struggle. I mean, we talk about it all the time and in, in uh, like performance world about, you know, the, it's the, the, the classic example always used is, is the beginning. We were talking about Stravinsky earlier, but the beginning of the right of strings spring mm -hmm. for the bassoon that like high pitch is in extreme but make the performer sit with that, make the performer yeah. sit with those two notes and make them do it over and over and over and keep that composure and hear the degradation in that compose, uh, composure, hear that, um, that rawness kind of seep in. It's really a fascinating place to sit with for everybody. What I would also say to that is to like any young artists or fresh, fresh kids out there, what also is really excellent with that is that it's also so much to do with practicalities. 
for me. So it's like, again, like the tin cans. It creates this violent, mm. uncomfortable sound. The two notes creates this, you know, incredibly uncomfortable sound, but it's actually a very easy, straightforward thing. I've given the singer two notes. So <laughs> there's a lot less... I mean, that has its own practical problems. But, you know, just from, like, learning new music as a singer is incredibly difficult. And in the original production, they sang with the score. And, you know, again, the dance opera element was that it's just made more sense. The dancers do all the physical work and the singers do all the emotive vocal work. You know, so there's, there's you know, in that you can create incredible, you know, um, moments with the, for instance, with when Pia would cover the hands over Kate, you know, these incredible images. But it was also practical things. So... You can tease out of your your limitations, especially when you have no money and time, mm-hmm. you know, and out of that you can tease um, extremities or, or whatever it is, you know, and, and create um, mm-hmm. some really amazing moments like that from, from yeah. the scraps. <laughs> but this is kind of a, I mean, it's partly kind of a metaphor for life, isn't it? It's no point living in the middle here. You might as well live at the extremes because yeah. that's where all the interesting shit is, if you excuse my language. But that's where that's where the, the fun stuff is. And and also, you know, you mentioned about, you know, the, the fact that using tin cans, this kind of thing. One of the one of the big things I always hear about classical music when talking to my friends is that it's it's unapproachable, it's too expensive, it's too difficult, it's da 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 da. You can rattle off a list of things because you've got to buy a $500 violin or you've got to buy this, that or the other, and you've got to go to 400 lessons and then you've got 10,000 hours and then you might be good, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to the, the sort of more popular music, as we might say, where you can go and thrash it out. And, and, and so, you know, what I quite like about the tin cans in this is that anybody can do that. Yes. Anybody can pick that up and, and, and do that and, and make some music by doing something simple it doesn't have to be you don't have to have the, all this stuff and yeah. and to be in this genre of sort of poshness or whatever you want to call it to actually make good good classical or avant-garde or whatever you want to call it music yeah and that's you know in orpheus the singers have to scrunch paper and plastic yeah. bottles and that element to it is that you know anyone could just pick up that that and they're, they're not percussionists they're singers and so more often than not, they got it wrong. And that's fine. Like, that's kind of part of the charm. That's also, you know, part of the, the aspect of humans doing music, that, that element of noodling that is so prevalent in folk music or, or pop music, you know, which, you know, think of every 15-year-old picking up a guitar for the first time. Like, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, so, yeah. you know, I work in a very heightened uh, world. But, yeah, trying to bring that that um, spontaneity again into it and empowering classical musicians to perhaps part of my music, there is elements of improvisation and um, Mm. not a huge amount, but yeah, there is certainly times of aleatoricism, if you will. Uh, And that, you know, again, it's about empowering those musicians to make choices. And inherently when you do that, um, they love it. They love it. You know, Mm. they, they get the opportunity to contribute something above and beyond the vision of the composer. And that's something that's, um, you know, again, like we said before, if Mozart or Beethoven, you know, if we're doing magic flute now, I'm sure Mozart would be like, yeah, get a DJ, you know, we'll just get get DJs to do it. Like, why would we have a whole orchestra there? We don't have any money. You know, there would be, there would be practical um, considerations made for those Mm. reasons. I mean, I guess I get, I think we're probably all on the same page here, but, but there is this kind of, you know, we're less, seem to be less precious about the past 
than, than a lot of people. And I think that's kind of a, do you think that's a, do you think that's a queer thing? I mean, I'm just curious here whether this is because, you know, um, with all the challenges that we have in life, do we see this as, as, as part of that is questioning these things, you know, and saying, are, are, is this real or is it just uh, what's been imposed upon us by the structure of whatever? I think that like, we're so lucky. Like, I love this I- the idea that like, we're our own club, you know, <laughs> and we get to access this slither of history that informs, like, it empowers. And I think that like, for me, again, the Greek thing, it's like, the awful, like, industrialized world has was inherently conservative, you know? You think of like mm. Britain in the 18, late 1800s, post-war mm. period, you know, Eisenhower, all that kind of stuff. Inherently really, you know, nuclear family, blah, blah, blah. But there was a time where a man like Orpheus had a wife, had a boy on the side, was in orgies, did all these other things, and is still held on a pedestal, but people don't know that. And I just love that, like, idea that we also are mm. special and have access as queer people to this, like, whole undercurrent of culture. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm not straight, so I don't know if the other side doesn't. But, like, in my experience, I, you know, history and, 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 it, questioning of gender and identity and all these things you have that's the you know it's the gig (laughs) it's what you're doing every day so um there's a knowledge there that you have to learn or or acknowledge you know Hmm. i mean it's quite well i mean it's quite a lot of history of 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 i guess what would be called white cis heteronormative society um eradicating queerness out of like cultures like india and and anywhere the colonies went they just eradicated any any sort of queerness and and Mm. and and just you know made it as you say these victorian mill you know the old ancient dark satanic mills type thing so yeah absolutely absolutely yeah Thanks again for listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the music and conversation. We're looking forward to bringing you the next podcast soon. Also, many thanks to Jared Miller for all the incidental music we are using. Until next time.